Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, voters in two Latin American countries took to the polls in elections that will almost certainly have important and far-reaching implications for the region. On Sunday, June 6th, Voters participated in the largest election in Mexico's history, electing officials to more than 21,000 offices, including all members of the country's lower house. That same day, Peruvians took to the polls for the runoff presidential election between leftist candidate Pedro Castillo, a farmer and rural school teacher, and conservative candidate Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of jailed former president Alberto Fujimori. Joining us today to discuss these elections and the results are experts from the region. First, we'll hear from Alejandro Moreno, a Mexico Institute Global Fellow and Director of Public Opinion Polling at the Mexican newspaper El Financiero. A bit later in the program, Cynthia Sanborn, a professor of political science at the Universidad del Pacifico in Peru, will join us to discuss that country's election. I should also mention that Cynthia will soon be joining the Wilson Center as a Global Fellow. But before we get started, let's welcome back our regulars. Please say hello to Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Hey, Benjamin. Greetings, John. Brazil Institute Associate and Slater Family Fellow, Anya Prusa. Hi, Anya. Hi, John. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands joins us. Hi, Chris. Hi, hello, bonjour. And the Latin American Program's Director Cindy Arnson is also here. Hi, Cindy. Welcome back. Hey, John. Great to be with you. And Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman fills out our all-star roster. Hey, Andrew. Hey, John. How are you? So, uh, Andrew, if we could begin with you, we're going to start with Mexico, and I'm going to hand over the microphone to you uh, so you can speak with our special guest, Alejandro. All yours, Andrew. Thanks, John. And Alejandro, thanks for being with us. I know it's been a really busy uh, few days for you, so we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Let's jump right in. President Lopez Obrador's Morena Party and its allies won a majority in the lower house of Congress, but they did not reach their desired two-thirds majority that they would need to amend the Constitution. In addition, uh, I believe Morena actually lost some seats compared to its own 2018 results. Could you talk a little bit about what the results say about uh, Morena, the ruling party's support in Mexico? Yes, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, everyone. Well, during the campaigns, it was a common narrative to think that this was an election on López Obrador sort of like if he was kind of re-electing himself for the next three years. But the fact is that this was a congressional election and very parliamentarian one in which the parties, the main actors, won in a lot of places, the different actors, and they also lost a a, a lot of ground. So this was fascinating, interesting in every possible way. You have gains and losses by everyone. Of course, some of them won more, some of them uh, lost more, but this was a a very redistributive kind of election in terms of power. And the most important result, perhaps, is the fact that the governing party did not 
reach enough votes to have a qualified majority, which enables them or the president to um, amend the constitution without further negotiation with other parties. So, but there is a simple majority still to be determined uh, in the final number of seats. And um, there is another part of the election or the elections, because this was a, a, a number of different elections for different uh, uh, government levels. Uh, 15 governor races in which before the election we were projecting with the polls that the most positive scenario for Morena was going to be 11 of the 15 and the most negative, the most pessimistic scenario was 7 of the 15, slightly under half. Well, it turned out to be the best possible scenario. Morena seems to have won 11 of 15 leaving two to the PAN in places that the PAN is already governing, and two other alternations that are kind of maverick uh, candidates in Nuevo León and also in San Luis Potosí. So this is also very, very interesting. The, the balance of power at the state level has changed significantly. And if we go down to the local level elections, we also see a lot of alternation. Mexico City, for example, it's quite the opposite story from the state races, because uh, from having a majority of local governments for Morena in 2018, now they lost about half of what they had. And Mexico City is now split in a very interesting political divide. But uh, I think that gives you a general idea of what happened on Sunday the 6th. Thanks, Alejandro. That was great. That was that was really comprehensive. Uh, lots of questions come to mind, uh, but let's shift gears a little. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what your results, uh, the exit polling, et cetera, might say about the role of women in the election. We had talked previously in, in other podcasts and other events about whether or not there'd be a woman's vote or whether women would react to some of the uh, events of the campaign season, including uh, at one point the possibility that a, uh, an accused rapist would be a gubernatorial candidate. So maybe you could talk about whether, was there any meaningful women's vote or any other groups that appear to be voting in a surprising fashion? Yes, well, based on a national exit poll that we conducted among voters on, on Sunday, we found that women actually voted in a higher proportion than men uh, and also in relation to 2018. In 2018, men and women um, split in halves. Now it was a 53-47% with women more likely to have turned out. So this is, this is an important thing because in previous elections, we had seen men voting in slightly higher proportions than women. Also, at the candidate level, we had more can uh, female candidates for governor. And in fact, six of them have won. This is almost tying the, the total number of governors, uh, women governors that we have had in the country before. So in one single election, you almost match the historical number. So this is a huge advance for, advance for that. Um, it's interesting what you mentioned in the case of Guerrero, because there was uh, a lot of controversy in regards to the candidacy of uh, Salgado Macedonio. And ultimately, he was, uh, let's say, disqualified from the race, but substituted by his daughter. And the daughter won. So this is going to be one of the new female governors. And it's going to be interesting to follow what, what the dynamics of the new government are going to be. But also at the local level, we see a lot of advanced by, by women candidates. In Mexico City, 
many of the new majors at the local level are going to be women. So um, how did they vote it according to our exit poll? Not very differently from men in regards to the main two coalitions. Their, their, their differences are within margin of error. But surprisingly, women voted more for third parties, for other parties, whether it is Movimiento Ciudadano or the new parties that, by the way, did not reach enough votes to uh, keep the registration for the next election. So we expect them to to disappear, uh, to lose their, their registration. But it's interesting that the female electorate opted in this occasion more, not for the party in government or the main opposition, but for, for other parties. Just to give you the number, uh, about 18% of women voted for third parties, uh, as opposed to 12% among men. So the difference is not huge, but there is something there that we should be perhaps exploring. What was it that did not convince these women to vote for the main two coalitions? Thanks, Alejandro. We have just a couple, probably seconds left. So let me just ask you one final question. How did how did the pollsters do overall? How were your projections compared to final results? Well, it depends. If we look at the national election for Congress, I think the polls did relatively well. And they have done so historically because uh, congressional elections are so partisan that it's not so difficult to estimate the possible result. Uh, there was a little, little overestimation of the government party, which led some pollsters to think that the possibilities for qualified majority were higher. But other than that, it was pretty good. At the state level, however, we have a lot of variants, and I don't think the polls did as well as, as at, at the national level. We have to do a, a, a much detail, more detailed evaluation, but the uh, ranges in the state-level governorships are, some of them, not acceptable. So there was a little bit of everything, Andrew. I think that uh, many of them were very good. Um, in general, I think we were able to anticipate this, this scenario of Morena going from 7 to 11. And like I said, it seemed that they pulled it off in this, in this uh, situation. They, they came up with the best possible result, result for the uh, governor uh, races. At the national level, however, they did not do as well as the president and the party had wished. Great, Alejandro. Thank you. I, I think we need to leave it there. But again, really appreciate your participation with us today. I'll turn it back over to you, John. Thank you, Andrew, and, and special thanks to you, Alejandro. And now we're going to turn to our roundtable. And what we'd like to do is we'll go around to each of you and, and get your feedback on, on what you just heard and also any independent thoughts you have on the election that just took place in Mexico. Maybe your biggest takeaway or you want to uh, identify something that Andrew and Alejandro haven't spoken about. Let's begin with Cindy Arnson. Thanks, John, and thanks, Alejandro. One of the things that really struck me about the election was the level of violence directed at candidates and and people involved in the electoral process. Um, There's been a tremendous amount of drug-related violence in in Mexico, um, very violent organized crime groups. But the way that this was just such a clear message of intimidation um, against people who wanted to participate in the political system, um, I thought was really, really troubling. The other thing that I found surprising, really, was that um, as dismally as uh, President Lopez Obrador has handled the COVID pandemic, that his numbers were not even worse. Um, He did not gain the two-thirds majority that he'd hoped for in the lower house. 
to be able to move forward on constitutional reform. Um, but still, he did he did pretty well, and um, his performance over over this, this, these uh, months in office has been less than stellar. Thanks, Cindy. Chris Sands. Uh, Alejandro, the thing that I'm curious about is how the economy um, really played in this election. Uh, I cover Canada, and um, it's interesting. It seems like COVID has depressed the economy in all three countries, and incumbents almost always get blamed for some of that. But how are Mexicans responding to the economy and, and to the USMCA as it's been brought in but hasn't really had a normal first year? Alejandro, if you want to discuss any of the questions posed by Cindy or Chris. Yes, thank you so much, Cindy, Chris. Um, I think that what Cindy points out about the violence is one of the negative aspects that is going to be remembered about this election. Hopefully, uh, we will be put under a a better situation for the next election. But uh, the issue of crime is the main issue for voters when, as they came to the to the poll. So. Over the pandemics, over the economy, which leads me to the second question, but crime and public safety were the main issue as voters came to the to, to, to the polls. Um, in regards to the economy, I think that we found through the exit poll that, yes, as you would expect, negative evaluations of the economy relate to voting for the opposition parties and positive evaluations for the governing coalition. But it is, just like uh, Cindy was saying, very surprising that with the the economic crisis uh, caused by the pandemics, by the lockdown, and also the pandemics itself, that we have one of the worst uh, rates of contagions and deaths in, in, in the region. I think that it is surprising that it didn't play a, a, a larger role in somehow punishing the government party. I think it has partly to do with the campaign of vaccination that came in the last few months and that has worked very swiftly, relatively well. And we have, just to to finish this up very, very quickly, John, uh, a few numbers. Those people in the exit poll, the voters who told us that they had lost uh, their jobs or their main source of income, they voted more for the opposition coalition, 44 against 42. This is not a very significant difference. Those who did not lose their job or, or income uh, source, they voted 45-41 for the government coalition. Again, not a significant difference. So it seems that the, the economic crisis did not play a central role as other, uh, as other aspects. In regards to contagions and, and vaccination, we also have slight differences in the preference for one or the other coalition, but again, they're not quite significant. The main divide has to do with ideological projects, left and right, your position uh, towards the fourth transformation of the president, and of course, the president himself. Uh, so uh, pandemics, not so much. The crisis, not so much. This comes from the political polarization that we have seen for the last few years. Thanks, Benjamin Gadan. Thanks, John, and thanks, Alejandro. I mean, I share Alejandro and, and Cindy's surprise, but not only because of the you know really uneven leadership of, of President Lopez Obrador during the pandemic, but also the regional context. I mean, this is a region right now that is experiencing this anti-incumbent fervor and, you know, real resentment of political elites. And we've seen that, you know, in, in lots of elections in, in recent years, but particularly in the last few months. And yet, you know, the Mexican leadership has maintained surprising levels of, of popularity. All I can say is the leaders of countries like Chile, Colombia, they must be taking notes. They must be considering flying coach, holding these hours long press conferences, just wondering what the magic is 
in Mexico City that has enabled AMLO to retain the loyalty of so many Mexicans. Anya Prusa. I think just building on on what Benjamin highlighted, right? AMLO's staying power, which is surprising in some ways, as some of the other speakers have noted, um, and thinking, you know, down the road, what this might mean in Brazil uh, for Jair Bolsonaro, who, although very different uh, in terms of ideology, has employed similar tools as a populist nationalist politician. Okay, let's go full circle. We'll we'll end this segment where we began it. Andrew, any final thoughts uh, from you? Sure. Uh, just a couple quickly, John. Um, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, which is really important, is that Mexico's electoral institutions worked, particularly the National Electoral Institute, which ran a, a near flawless campaign, which, as noted, is the largest one ever in Mexico. And I think voters' faith in INE, which had been shaken um, in part by statements by the the governing coalition, uh, was somewhat restored. And and that's extremely important. Similar to that, President López Obrador accepted the results. There were some concerns, uh, again, during the campaign that he was questioning the integrity and the impartiality of the INE. So it's really important that, that he largely accepted the results. Obviously, he doesn't love everything that happened, um, but seems to have accepted the, the outcome. Um, and, and third is the role of, of some of the minor parties, particularly the Green Party, which in some sense will have a, a king-making role to get Morena the votes it needs to, to have a majority in the lower house. The Green Party in Mexico is not a Green Party in the way that, that most people think of it. It's not really an ecological party. Um, it's more an opp- opportunistic party probably Anya like the PMDB in, in Brazil that's always in government regardless of who's leading. Um, so those are, I, I think, three important points. And, and I guess the last lesson from our conversation is that we need to get Benjamin uh, a raffle ticket for the presidential plane in Mexico. <laughs> Gadan flies coach. That's what we, we learned from this segment. Alejandro, Andrew, thank you very much. Thanks to everyone. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment with Cynthia Sanborn on the runoff election in Peru, you're listening to America's 360. Welcome back. We now turn our sights to Peru, and Cindy Arnson is standing by with Cynthia Sanborn. Hi, Cindy. Thanks so much, John, and thanks, Cynthia Sanborn, for joining us. Cynthia, this has been an incredibly close election. What does that tell us about the kinds of divisions in Peruvian society, and particularly the social and the ethnic cleavages? Well, I think both the second round campaign and the prolonged um, effort to to decide a result have really laid bare some pretty deep differences in this country, some pretty deep gaps, particularly social and ethnic, rural and urban, but also upper class elites uh, and their fears of the countryside and their fears of the poor. It's unusual because in the first round, we saw that the majority of Peruvians did not want either of these candidates. 80% of Peruvians voted for somebody else, mostly a set of more reasonable, more moderate candidates. We ended up with these extremes, but between the first and second round and now this week-long you know, vote-challenging battle, um, it's really come wide open. And it's very sad that this is in our bicentennial year. And a little bit, little bit more than a month away, Peru is going to recognize its independence from Spain, but some of those deep divisions are still there. There's obviously been a lot of contesting of the election 
uh, particularly by Keiko Fujimori, as Castillo has seemed to to pull ahead. What does this say about the legitimacy overall of the election and the degree to which its results will be embraced by Peruvian society at some point as legitimate? Well, I think the decision of Keiko Fujimori to challenge the results, not at the voting level, not during the vote count, but after, I mean, not during the the process, but afterwards using, you know, elite law firms to try and find as many cases of possible irregularities that will work against her, her opponent has really placed a higher risk on the legitimacy of an election that was already um, weak in that way because so many people were not happy with the outcome with the choices that they had. But Peru's rules require that you rally together and pick someone in the second round. And to have this, the, the losing, apparently losing contender challenge it this way is really damaging, I think, to the legit, legitimacy of the outcome. Whoever ends up winning this race and all evidence points to Castillo by an extremely narrow lead. But once again, like in 2016, Keiko uh, most likely lost and her um, kind of prolonged effort to try and change that, I think it's been extremely damaging. The way in which it's being done is very damaging. Peru is a deeply polarized society. As you say, most of the country didn't want either of these candidates Given the composition of the Congress, a, a narrowly uh, elected leader, how is it going to be possible to govern? Peru is a country that's facing massive challenges, bringing the pandemic under control, reviving the economy. What do you see as the sort of near to medium term prospects for Peru being able to make progress in addressing any of these quite substantial underlying problems? Well, you know, um, a week ago, I would have said that it is very important for whoever wins to reach out to the other side, to reach out to all 18 candidates who wanted to run this country and seek agreements to unite around issues that rally this country together, like fighting COVID, like reviving this economy. But seeing this week of hate speech and voters challenges and exacerbating ethnic differences and racism in this country, I'm very worried about the ability of whoever comes in to pull the country together. It's essential that figures who are widely respected by all sides be brought into this government, hopefully a broader-based cabinet, uh, and those who can lead us beyond these um, tremendous divisions. This may sound a bit Pollyannish, but do you see any sort of proverbial silver linings? Are there some things looking ahead that might come out of this election in a positive way that we're not able to see or anticipate at this moment? Well, um, silver linings amidst the storm clouds. I would say that the fact that so many Peruvians want this to be over, want attention paid to the bread and butter issues and the health issues, don't want to continue to see a fight. I mean, public opinion, I would suspect when the polls come out again, public opinion does not like this, this prolonged challenging of people's um, right to vote and express themselves. So I think public demands, public opinion is a silver lining. And I also think that there will be people, especially on the Fujimori side, who might have supported her candidacy because their fears of Castillo, which are legitimate fears of what he would do, but do not support this idea that there's fraud or that they're challenging the, the outcome. And I think if those people come forward and speak about the need to move on, 
we also have a, a Congress that is not going to support fully the new president, and uh, hopefully we'll have checks and balances, and that's what democracy is about in, in one sense. Cynthia, there has been a great deal of concern expressed not only by Peruvian elites, but also in the international community about the economic policies and platform of Pedro Castillo. What can you tell us about where you think uh, a potential Castillo government is likely to go? Well, the first part of that question, uh, with good reason to be concerned, we, Castillo has said very little. The official plan that was presented to the electoral authorities by the party is a very extreme sort of anti-market um, focus. It talks about re reassessing free trade agreements, being more protectionist, uh, rescinding contracts to investment, a series of things that, that generate a lot of concern because Peru's economy before the pandemic was doing well because of its openness and because of its trade. Uh, however, we don't know where he'll go because he has not even been able to decide and, and declare who his advisors are going to be. And part of that is his own indecisiveness. And part of it is that until the electoral authorities can finally declare a winner, he doesn't want to declare himself. Um, so a lot depends on whether he chooses to associate with more moderate, left of center, democratic, um, and you know, social democratic figures who have been talking to him lately, or the more radical elements in the party for which he ran, but with which he's not been a militant. This is a party that loaned him their platform to run for office. So we really don't know if he'll go with them or not. And one final question, which is that people are looking at the region as a whole um, and the way the COVID-19 pandemic has affected politics. Do you see Peru as Peru a case to be understood in its own context? Or do you think that this suggests anything about a broader trend across the region? I would like to say both. Um, Peru historically has been, I think, more deeply fragmented and with weaker institutions than a lot of the other countries in the region, um, especially the democracies. And so I think that this is not a surprise that we ended up where we are. Also, the pandemic, because of that, has hit Peru harder than many other countries in the region. But I do think the fragmentation and the dissatisfaction with existing parties and the, the looking for other forms of representation is a common trend in the region. We only have to look to Chile, which used to have very strong parties with a lot of identification among the voters and the populace. And now Chile is also seeing new demands for different kinds of participation. So I think Peru has a deeper and more serious problem with fragmentation and with lack of strong institutions. But I do think it's also part of a broader trend. Cynthia, thanks so much. Really appreciate your insights. Okay, thank you, Cindy and Cynthia. And uh, we're going to bring our roundtable in for some quick comments before our time ends. But before I do that, just a little plug for the Latin American program. Uh, uh, back in February, as part of their uh, discussions with leaders from the region, they hosted the current and soon outgoing president of Peru. And if you'd like to hear that discussion and see that program, you could find it at the Wilson Center website if you come to the Latin American program tab and uh, click on past events. Okay, let's uh, begin this segment with Anya Prusa. Anya, you have the first thought. I'm just struck, John, um, by listening to the conversation uh, with Cynthia, how much frustration there is um, among voters and how much polarization there is in the political scene in Peru. And I think we're seeing this across Latin America um, and that there is a real challenge that governments are facing and not meeting the demands of the people and the expectations of their people. 
Anya often feel when we have these discussions that we're we're not limiting ourselves to the Western Hemisphere, that you could make these observations almost globally these days. Benjamin. Yeah, I mean, when I've said this in the past, uh, our colleague Cindy Arnson has, has accused me of holding Latin America to too low a standard. But I really do think the quality of the election in Peru is worth noting. The clean administration of it with international observation, the transparent you know, counting of ballots is you know, a really important silver lining in a really difficult context for Peru. Um, very little violence, despite two problematic candidates really riling up their supporters. Now, I think you know, there's legitimate governability questions, and I think Peru's democratic institutions are, are nothing to write home about. But I, I repeat, I think the fact that in these conditions, the election was held and held so effectively, I think really is encouraging. Chris Sands. Yeah, you know, this was really striking for me. And because I, I, I follow things from the Canadian side a little bit, you know, the striking role that that Peru has played regionally and, you know, whether it was the OAS General Assembly that approved the Inter-American Democratic Charter in 2001 or more recently the Lima Group on Venezuela in 2017. And what this leaves me wondering is whether Peru will recede a little bit from regional diplomacy and playing the leadership role that it has played, which I think has been really an important connector for a lot of the countries outside. Andrew. Thanks, John. I think I would sort of circle back to something Anya had had mentioned, which is uh, sort of the frustration among among voters and Cynthia pointing out what a large share of Peruvian voters didn't really initially support either candidate. You see in, and certainly saw this in Mexico as well, uh, people voting more against something than for something and oppositions coming together with a stated purpose of getting the other guys out. And it just strikes me that that's not sustainable long term unless your only objective is to be in power. Thanks. Let's circle back to where we began this segment. Cindy Arnson. Thanks so much, John. And it's so striking to me how if you add up the votes that Fujimori and Castillo got in the first round together, they barely equal a third of the Peruvian electorate. So there's a real gap in representation. And I'm not sure that that bodes well for the future of governance in the country. Thanks. So we have a couple minutes left. So before we end, I, I want to ask, uh, Alejandro is still with us from the first segment and, and Cynthia. I want to ask both of you a, a, a final question in that one of the things that we've discussed on America's 360 consistently is these trend lines as they relate to electoral politics across the region. And as we, we hinted at, we've concluded that in many cases, they're not limited to the region. And so if each of you could take maybe, uh, you know, 30 seconds to a minute for this complex question. Sorry about that. But if you could, if you could tell us, how much the elections that you just covered or are currently covering, since we're still waiting for a final result, uh, how much they indicate that they are part of a larger global trend or how much they are unique or what elements of them might make them unique? I know that's a lot to handle in 30 seconds or so, but just your quick thoughts on that. Cynthia, let's begin with you and then we'll go to Alejandro. Well, uh, I think we're seeing uh, forms of um, largely conservative populism and authoritarianism emerging in different parts of the world, including emerging out of uh, elections, but then becoming distorted uh, and, and challenging the very essence of democracy and liberty. And I think, unfortunately, the situation in Peru could lend itself to that. And it's once again, it's easy to talk about institutions, but this is a case where the institutions are fundamental, whether our electoral institutions will hold up and whether the balance of powers will hold up to put a break on whatever authoritarian trend will come out of this election result. 
Thanks, Alejandro. So how much is this about Mexico and how much is Mexico just part of a larger current that's sweeping across the planet? I think there are more general aspects in the Mexican election that you might think of, but um, one of them is the aspect of populism and how it plays in regards to the narrative, the rhetorics, the threats to democracy, which, as Andrew was saying before, I think we, uh, in, in, in terms of how the election was organized, it was a very strong showing of how the institutional uh, setting for the elections and the citizen participation was rather strong. So in this case, I think the Mexican democracy is strengthened after this election in, in many ways. Uh, but also uh, in a global trend, I think Mexicans are much more polarized than they were before. And this, this shows uh, different patterns around the world. This was certainly a very partisan and very ideological election. Uh, less polarized than 2018, according to our exit poll data, but certainly with two camps that have been polarizing in the last few years. And I think that that very much reflects uh, patterns that are not just particularly Mexican. Uh, if I could say just one final thing about Mexico, it has to do with the president himself, how the dynamics of the presidential personality uh, imprinted in this in this election, and just one single number from our poll. If there had been a consultation, a vote on the president, 49 would have said, yes, let him continue. 46% would have said, no, we want him to stop. Deeply divided. Hmm. Well, stay tuned, because eventually we, we may see some other votes that illustrate that even further. Thanks, everyone. Terrific discussion. Cindy, Anya, Benjamin, Chris, Andrew, as always. Special thanks to Alejandro and Cynthia. And of course, thanks to our faithful listeners. We hope you'll join us again next time and that you enjoyed this edition. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit WilsonCenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.